Hey, Church of the Beloved. Happy New Year to you, uh, and thank you so much for joining us on this first Sunday of 2021. If this is your first time joining us today, I'm Pastor Abe, and I'm so excited that you're here with us as we prepare to enter into this new year, and as well as start this, a whole new sermon series that we've decided to title The Gospel According to Hebrews. Uh, this isn't only the first Sunday of the new year, it's also the first Sunday of the month. And so as has become our tradition, we are going to be celebrating communion together virtually. So I'm going to ask you, if you haven't had a chance, to go ahead and grab the communion elements, the bread and the cup, so that together we can uh, remember the redemptive act of our Savior. And we're going to do that together at the end of today's message. Now, before we get into the service, the sermon, I'm going to ask if you would join with me in prayer because I, I want to start this first sermon of 2021 uh, by dedicating this time and this message to God uh, for his glory and for his beloved's edification. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have called us to worship you, so we do. You have called us to give you all the glory, so we do. And you've called us to give you all the honor, so we do. And may the words of my mouth be a conduit of your truth alone. Holy Spirit, speak through me. I lift this prayer up in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks to uh, Peter for leading us in corporate prayer. Um, you will see it's very relevant to today's message. Also, uh, David or Pastor Otua, if you happen to be listening right now, I also want to thank you. I really appreciated the message you shared last week. Let me tell you all, uh, the message that David preached last week, it was a bit difficult. Not because of the content of the message, but because he had to, to pre-record it a few weeks prior. Something that he was not comfortable with at all, and for good reasons. He, as preachers, we want, we want to be relevant. We want to be contextual to the audience, and we want to be contextual to the time. And so pre-recording a sermon, that's, that's not an easy ask. But the God we serve is an amazing and an awesome God. And I, and I really appreciated how God used David to remind us that God's not done. You know, that, that God carries on the work of his plan in our lives. Even through this last year, 2020, that, at least for me, was simultaneously the longest and the shortest year of my life. God continues to work in me. God continues to work in you to transform us. And I'll say that uh, that might be slow, that change. It might be painful, and at times it may be very difficult. But I'm so excited to see uh, what that transformation is going to look like in David as he prepares to plant a new church in Chicago. I I'm excited to see how gospel transformation is going to look like as we continue to identify new leaders within the Church of the Beloved. And I'm excited to see what transformation will look like as we heal from the hurts especially from 2020, and begin moving forward to advance the cause of Christ in Chicago, in this city. As I said, this week we're going to start a new series that we've entitled uh, The Gospel According to Hebrews. And this series will likely take us into the Easter season and Pastor James, and for those who don't know, Pastor James is our uh, teaching pastor who's returned from sabbatical, uh, one person larger in family. Uh, congratulations to James and to Stephanie and to their son Benjamin on the adoption of their newest son and the addition of their newest brother. 
Joshua. Welcome to Chicago, Joshua. Um, now, Pastor James is going to be doing much of the teaching for this sermon series over the next few months, but I wanted to kick it off this week. Now, before we look at the passage that was just read by Grace, uh, I wanted to provide some context, some background on this book of Hebrews. One of the first things I want to mention is that this is the only book in the New Testament where the author is truly anonymous, un totally unknown. Unlike other epistles or letters, unlike the other books in the Bible, whoever wrote Hebrews decided that it wasn't necessary to mention their name or, or specifically who this missive was originally intended for. So this book is unlike other books of the Bible where we would typically know I have some idea who wrote it, as well as who it was written for. Because like, you'll see it right in the beginning of a letter. See, when we know who a letter or a book in the Bible is intended for, then we'll have some uh, more context from sources other than the Bible. And we, we can know a bit about life in, for example, Galatia or Philippi or Ephesus. So we have some insight into the original intended audience from extra-biblical sources. But for this letter, the only context from an original reader perspective is based on what is in the book itself. And what we see in Hebrews is a lot of references to the Old Testament. So most scholars believe that this book was likely written for Jewish converts to what was at the time called the way or, or Christianity, hence the name Hebrews. Another thing I want to point out is that uh, about the title of this book. Yeah, now, the English Standard Version, or ESV, uh, it titles this book as The Letter to the Hebrews, and other translations may just call it Hebrews or something else. If you sit down and read this book, though, and, and read through it, which I, I recommend you do if you have a chance to as we start this sermon series, you read it, and it reads much more like a, a sermon than a, a, a letter. It includes examples, it's got metaphors, multiple points, takeaways, even has a benediction at the end. It doesn't make a huge difference either way. But I wanted to mention it only because it helped me uh, as I started my own study of this book to look at it as a sermon letter. The last contextual point I want to make uh, is about the timing you know, of when this sermon letter was likely written. Now, scholars have dated this epistle as having been written around 67 to 69 AD. And as I mentioned, this is likely to Jewish converts, and it turns out more than likely it was to Jewish converts in Rome. This means that this was written during the time of Nero. Now, historically speaking, Nero was a pretty nasty guy. Who, he was known for, for feeding Christians to lions and, and dipping them into tar and then lighting them up as torches for his dinner parties. I mean, if you have that in mind, just like today, if you hear the word or phrase, wear a mask, and you know it's written or mentioned in 2020, you probably can assume that it wasn't automatically talking about, you know, Halloween. In the same way, because we know what was happening to Christians when, when this letter was being first passed around and read, we can discern that one desire of the original author was likely to provide hope, hope to those suffering under Nero, hope of someone so much greater, as Peter mentioned, Jesus. That's a little bit of the, the context, the background of this uh, sermon letter. I want to say we ended 2020 
by looking at the Exodus story through a gospel lens. We, we displayed the gospel, the good news of Jesus' salvation as presented by the Old Testament book of Exodus. We considered how the redemption of Israel, God's chosen nation, by God through Moses, this was all a precursor uh, to the redemption of God's chosen people, God's beloved by God directly through his son, through Jesus Christ. Now, Pastor James and I, when we talked about this, we chose the title, The Gospel According to Hebrews, for this sermon series because we want to continue to present the Bible in this letter through that same gospel lens. You see, Hebrews, this sermon letter, you're going to see that it's going to reveal a better Moses that is leading us to a better promised land. Because Hebrews is going to present the gospel, the good news of Christ and his supremacy and his sufficiency. And so this sermon letter that was penned by an anonymous author for Jews who had been converted to the way, they were being burned alive by a maniacal despot. It was written to remind people of the hope that the Son of God provides to the original readers and to us. A hope based on the good news of Christ's supremacy, of Jesus' sufficiency and his superiority over all things. Now, as we look at today's scripture passage, this introduction to the sermon letter and to our series as a whole, this introduction, right from the very first verse, uh, we see that the author of Hebrews is presenting God as the ultimate or the communicator, the ultimate communicator. In verse 1, the author writes that God spoke. In verse 2, the author writes that God has spoken to us by his son. This is God speaking through prophets and ultimately through Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking this introduction. And I'm going to do that by considering three quick questions. First, who is God communicating to? The second question is, how is God communicating? And the third is finally, what is God communicating in this sermon letter? Who, how, and what? Now, I know I just spent the last few minutes (laughs) explaining that Biblical scholars uh, believe that this sermon letter was originally intended for ethnically Jewish Christians. Uh, But I can also say with confidence that Hebrews is not limited to that one minority group. Because this letter is meant for people who are weary, people who are stalled in their faith, who are being persecuted, who are just tired, people who are on the brink of giving up, people who can't seem to find the strength or the energy to continue in their faith. In chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This letter is for those who are feeling weary, who are faint-hearted, who are tired. And if you consider, how appropriate is that for us right now? I, I mean, as I was reading through Hebrews again, as, as I considered that this was being written, this was written as an encouragement for the weary, for the faint-hearted, I started to think about and consider the last few years at Church of the Beloved. Not just last year. I, I, I know that there are a number of people right now who have been faithfully striving to be engaged, to be devoted through Zoom fatigue, to be devoted through the uncertainties of the future of our church. 
I, I know that there are many who are wondering, why bother? Why bother with this church? Or even why bother with this faith? There are some that have asked or maybe are asking the question, what's the use? What's the use of it all? There is a weariness that is palpable. And I'll be absolutely honest with you. That weariness, that fatigue, I, I feel it too. It's tired. And the author of Hebrews understands that trials and tribulations, they sap energy. The writer of this sermon and letter appreciates that at times when faith is diminished, when you, when you feel like giving up or giving in, sometimes what you need is a kick in the butt or a slap in the face to wake you up, to wake me up from my stupor. You know, you got to think about it. If you had a, in the pre-COVID days, if you had a personal trainer, you know, you're working out, they're going to yell at you, and you're yelling your face to push, spray you with encouragement to just do one more rep. That's what Hebrews is. There are passages in this book that are going to be like a slap in the face, a kick in the butt, and it's going to be followed by a loving caress that reminds us that not only is Jesus sufficient, not only is Jesus superior, but Jesus is our, is your Savior as well. So the first thing I see as I unpack these four introductory verses is that God is communicating to me, to us, all of us who are weary, who are tired. But here's a question to ponder. If God is talking to you and to me through this sermon letter, are you listening? I think that the author had the same question in mind in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, where it says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Have you ever had a situation where um, you were in a conversation with someone when you suddenly realized uh, you weren't really paying attention? And the person you're talking to suddenly asks you a question, and now you're kind of stuck. You either have to admit, uh, I wasn't paying attention. You weren't that important to me. Or you have to agree to something that you actually don't know what you're agreeing to. Oftentimes, familiarity, it breeds complacency. In other words, the more familiar you are with someone or some topic or something, the more likely you are going to be to assume that you know what's about to be said, and so you kind of stop listening. I know I used to do this quite a bit, unfortunately, with my wife. Suzette, and she, she would start talking to me. I'd be in the middle of something and only half pay attention. And we both acknowledge and realize that's just rude and it's wrong. So now we both will, when the other has something to share or talk about, we'll stop whatever it is we do, put our phone away, turn away from a computer, whatever, intentionally turn to each other. We'll look at each other before we'll start, start talking and before we start listening. I'll be honest, it makes watching TV or a movie kind of difficult at times because I'll have hit that pause button a lot. My wife likes to talk to me a lot. Um, not in a bad way, of course. But we want to listen to each other. We want to be intentional with each, other, with each other. So here's the thing. To avoid the problem of being dull of hearing, we are called to come to God with a posture of a humility, no assumption, so that we can be open to what God is communicating to us through the entirety of the Bible, especially this gospel, according to Hebrews. So God is communicating. God is speaking to all those who are weary, to each of us. So pay attention. The second question I have is how? 
And what you see in this introductory passage is a very distinct pattern that will be repeated over and over again throughout Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And here's the pattern. What this author is doing artfully is using the familiar to introduce something fresh, something new. And it's all on the foundation of God's unchanging faithfulness. This author uses parallels to show how God has always been pointing to the same redemption promise from the beginning. The writer of Hebrews contrasts different eras. For example, in verse 1, it says long ago. In verse 2, it says, but in these last days. There's a parallel drawn between who God is speaking to. In verse 1, it says, our fathers. And in verse 2, it says, he has spoken to us. There's, there's a parallel drawn between the means of communications. In verse 1, it says, by the prophets. In verse 2, it says, he's spoken to us by his son. There's even an assumed parallel uh, in uh, how God is communicating. In verse 1, it says, at many times and in many ways through the prophets. And the assumption is that it's only one way through Jesus. The author of Hebrews draws these parallels from the past to open our eyes to the present and to the future. This writer explains that the revelations of the old days were just shadows of the final revelation in Jesus Christ. And all these revelations come from and with the same foundational authority, God. God, in his never-changing, forever, constant faithfulness, made a promise. He entered into a covenant with Adam, with Eve, with Abraham, with Moses and David, and God keeps that promise. And he reminds us all along through example after example as presented in the Old Testament until it comes to completion in Christ. Now, as I said, the author uses the familiar to introduce something fresh, something new, but the familiar may not be that familiar to us. I'll mention some people think that uh, I'm a Star Wars fanatic. Just because I happen to often unintentionally, I usually have some form of Star Wars, Star Wars memorabilia on me at all times, which I do. But I don't consider myself fanatical. I am a fan. I mean, if, have you ever sat down with a true fanatic? Someone who lives and breathes something, whether it's Star Wars or uh, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, Fortnite, K-pop, the Bears, whatever. Everything that comes out of their mouth it oozes some reference to or some Easter egg that will typically be lost on mere mortals. And there have been days when I'll be sitting and listening to people talk about the Cubs or for my San Francisco friends who are watching in, talk about the, four, I mean, sorry, the Giants. I keep forgetting the baseball team's names. Um, I'm not a big fan of baseball. But I'll, I'll just smile and nod because I have no clue what they're talking about. I mean, I root for the Cubs, but I don't know anything about them. But I love to see the passion of, the, of a fanatic. See, if you're not careful while reading this book, it's going to be very easy to just smile and nod because the parts that serve as the familiar aren't necessarily that familiar to us. There are some obvious places where the author will very specifically quote Old Testament passages. And I would encourage you, if you have the time, to go back and read those for the full context. But it can be very easy for us 
to miss the Easter eggs. In, in verse 5, there's a reference to angels, and, and a Hebrew would potentially likely recognize that the author is talking about a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 33. It tells a story of the angels being there when the Torah was being given to Moses. In, in verse 3, when the author speaks of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, it's probably in reference to Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, this author is making a huge assumption that the reader will have a deep understanding of the cultural and the historical context of, of God's chosen nation and, and understanding of the Old Testament. The assumption is that the reader will be ethnically Jewish. So as we consider how God speaks through this book, what we're going to try to do is to point out some of those nuggets of familiarity to you so they're not lost on us, so that the familiar can bring about the fresh for us as well. So who is God speaking to? God is speaking to the faint-hearted, the tired, the weary. And how is God speaking? God uses this letter to show the parallels between the familiar and the fresh, the old and the new, all on a foundation of God's faithfulness. The last question I want to ask is, what is God saying? Now, most preachers, rightly so, will focus on this overarching theme of Christ being greater than everything in this letter. This is definitely the point of this sermon letter, no doubt about it. And we're going to dive into the nuances of that truth every week as we go through this series. But I think there's something else here in this introduction that I want to point out to you. And if you look at this passage, the author of this sermon letter to the Hebrews is saying that dogma feeds duty or, or theology informs transformation. Or to say it more simply, the writer is saying that what we believe needs to be right so that how we believe can be good. The practical application of our faith, like the, the essential nature of spiritual discipline, for example, is without question important. And in my lifetime, there have been organizations like uh, Navigators, Campus Crusade for Christ, different Christian fellowships. They have all rightly emphasized the need for good discipleship models, the need to apply spiritual disciplines in our day-to-day. -day. If you go to a retreat or to seminars, they'll typically include sessions on things like how to have an amazing quiet time or, or how to share Christ at work. And these are so important and really essential and good things. But unfortunately, Oftentimes, this has been at the cost, for some churches, the cost of spending time on Christian doctrine or, or dogma or theology. The best-selling books typically in Christian bookstores are going to be books on how to practically apply Scripture, not necessarily how to know Scripture. I'll tell you, in today's society, especially for me as well, and we're constantly spending time, whether it's at work or in life, creating SMART goals or conducting SWOT analysis meetings or, or engaging in retrospectives that will allow us to identify lessons learned, uh, a new set of actions to improve existing processes. These are good. They are absolutely essential things. I'm not trying to say, suggest in any way that we shouldn't be doing these. They are absolutely important to our academic, to our professional, and our spiritual lives. But by themselves, they're lacking. 
See, the author is trying to explain to the reader that there is so much more. There's an author, her name is Dorothy Sayers, and she's from the 1900s. She, she said this once. She said, we are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much on doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. In other words, our theology is, our theology must be the foundation of Christian practice, of our Christian life. Often we will forego the importance of Christian doctrine and go straight to Christian living, to application over implication, because sometimes it's just easier to be doers than thinkers. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Doing is absolutely vital. But step one is hearing, listening. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, before we can do anything, we must first understand why. And we understand why when the dogma or the doctrine of God is fully grasped within us. I mention this because what you may not hear every week are practical application of Scripture, but I don't want you to mistake the lack of a to-do list uh, of Christian practice as a bad message. Now, because sometimes our response to Scripture is going to be to allow the Word of God, to allow the Spirit of God to become such a part of us, a part of our soul, our psyche, that we can be transformed by it. Sometimes what Scripture is going to show us is why, so that we can live out the what. Because dogma feeds duty and what we believe needs to be right, so that how we believe can be good. This gospel, according to Hebrews, I think is an amazing sermon, a letter. It's a communique from God to those of us who are tired and who are weary. It's a message that uses parallels between the familiar and the fresh, the old and the new, all on a foundation of God's faithfulness. And finally, it's a letter that reminds us that not only is Jesus superior overall, but that that truth needs to be understood. We need to be sure that what we believe is right so that how we believe can be good.